On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Paul Gavriliuk about the doctrine of divine impassibility. So we cover all sorts of topics like just what is impassibility? Is it a biblical doctrine in any sense? Are there various different ways it has been understood throughout history, or is there a consistent theme? Is impassibility consistent with any passions whatsoever being ascribed to God, such as love or delight? Is impassibility consistent with God having emotions? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and we are a podcast that's dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And in Thinking Seriously, we've tried to give you some handrails for what that looks like. And so we've said, when we talk about serious thinking, we mean things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. So what that really means for us anyway, especially in the age of the internet where everything becomes outrage, is that we want to have both, yes, be as serious as possible out about arguments, be rigorous, uh, use every tool at our disposal, but also to do it in a spirit of charity and curiosity uh, towards others and pe- especially people who differ from us and what we think. Uh, we want to learn from them and understand because we don't have the monopoly on truth. We understand that we're all on this journey to understanding and knowing knowing God. So with, without further ado, I'm really excited about this interview today. Uh, we have Dr. Paul Gavriliuk with us today. And I mean, I think if you want to talk about divine impassibility, uh, everybody is mentioning his book, his, which is published, what, 20 years ago now, something like that in the, in the mid-90s. And I'm, I'm just thrilled about it because I've, I've studied his work so much in the past. I've read so much of it. And now this is an opportunity to ask him questions because people always have questions about impassibility. I feel like when you talk about certain classical sort of doctrines, this is one of those that always gets, well, I don't understand what that means. What, what, what's going on there? So before we get started, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself um, and give us a sense of why you decided to study uh, impassibility and other divine attributes like that. Thank you, Jordan. You know, when I came to the United States in 1993, I thought I was going to tackle the problem of evil and solve it. I was then a graduate student. I was about 21. And very soon I discovered that actually lots of people have written on the subject of the problem of evil and that solving it wasn't exactly uh, something, uh, it was something that would be probably above my pay grade at the time. Um, but I very quickly moved to the question of whether God suffers and what would the statement that God is impassable amount to. And I think the principal interest for me was the work of Jürgen Moltmann and the extent to which in the work of Moltmann, especially in the famous book, The Crucified God, I thought that the a classical Christian account of divine attributes has been misunderstood. So in many ways, I wrote then my dissertation, which happened to be my second book, uh, The Suffering of the Impassable God, The Dialectics of Patristic Thought, and published it in 2004 with Oxford. I wrote it in many ways in conversation with contemporary thought. Uh, while I engaged biblical and patristic theology primarily in the book, uh, the contemporary questions, or and the question primarily, what does God and how is God involved in suffering, 
that question has been the background music of that study. That's helpful. So when we talk about divine impassibility, for those who either A, just aren't super familiar with it, or maybe they think of a mischaracterization, how would you define what it means when we talk about that doctrine? Uh, so first and foremost, of course, impassibility itself is a technical term uh, that many educated people are quite rightly afraid of. So the first thing that needs to be said, it's impassibility spelled after SS, you have I and not A. In other words, we're not talking about impassable roads, roads that cannot be passed, uh, but rather we're talking about, uh, so in there effectively is something that denies what follows afterwards and what follows afterwards is passability or susceptibility to suffering. So uh, in my reading of the Church Fathers, the concept of divine impassibility means principally uh, um, it is what I call the apophatic qualifier. And specifically what it qualifies, and it is a corollary of the doctrine of divine transcendence. So if we want to claim that God is transcendent and transcends everything in the created order, then God is impassable in the same way in which he is uncreated. So think, let's just think, let's just think for a second of the adjective or predicate of God being uncreated. When we say that God is uncreated, we're certainly not saying that God lacks the property of being created. In other words, we're not claiming that God simply lacks something that all other creatures have. Rather, what we're saying is that God transcends everything in creation, for example, as the cause of everything that exists. We could also say uh, in this regard that God is uncreated in the sense that God is the creation or the creator of everything else and nothing created God. So similarly, when we speak of divine impassibility and immutability, I think it's important, first and foremost, to distance ourselves from a simplistic understanding that this is simply a God who is a bit like a stone and who is simply unemotional or lacks the property of being affected or lacks the property of suffering. My, I, I strongly prefer to think of impassibility as a claim that God transcends all suffering that belongs to creaturely realm, to created order. So that's the way in which I prefer to cast the notion. And what I argue in the book is that that finds, that particular understanding finds very good evidence, uh, particularly in the writings of the early church theologians or church fathers. Now, when people hear this doctrine, oftentimes what I hear from them as an objection is, well, there's no biblical support for this. Look at all the times in the scriptures that you see God suffering or uh, having these deep emotional pangs. So is there any sense in which this is a biblical doctrine, or are the patristic authors just borrowing from the Greeks and just repristinating whatever they said? So that is, I think, one of the main charges and one of the main apprehensions vis-a-vis -vis the doctrine of divine impassibility. I do think that it's a serious charge, and that it's a charge that needs to be responded to at great length. And then the book, in fact, one chapter is dedicated to the whole subject of divine emotions and in what way 
the Bible ascribes emotions to God, and then specifically how do patristic interpreters, patristic exegetes, deal with, with, with this claim. So you're absolutely right, Jordan. Of course, in the Bible, uh, God uh, feels a whole range of emotions, uh, from uh, joy to love to anger and distress. Uh, God, for example, is said to repent, and is also, he is said to be incapable of repenting. So the way in which Philo of Alexandria, and Philo of Alexandria is a significant Jewish Hellenistic theologian that lived in the first century BC and first century of the Common Era, this important period, um, and he's a contemporary of Jesus. Um, Philo formulates this in, in, in two fundamental exegetical principles, and that is he says that the Bible speaks of God that he is like human in many ways, and also uh, the Bible speaks of God as being unlike human or transcending everything. And so, in a sense, we can speak of God's care for creation, we can speak of God's immanent properties, everything that associates God with his relationship to creatures, and use the language of metaphors and analogies that render God anal analogous to human beings. And I think that would also include emotions. But we can also, we have to add to that, that God is in some fundamental ways unlike human beings. So what do patristic exegetes do with, for example, something like divine anger? In other words, is it possible, does it make any sense for God to feel wrath or anger? So in the book, because anger is such an important and complex uh, predicate, uh, and I call them I call them emotionally colored uh, attributes or characteristics, and the reason for that is because I do not wish to simply reduce, uh, uh, let's say, something like wrath or anger to the category of emotion. So I, I speak of them as sort of emotionally loaded or emotionally colored, and. Uh, Anger, for example, is interesting in the following way. Divine anger cannot simply be God becoming arbitrarily mad at, at creatures just because he can, just because he wants to. I think once you say that, you would then have to ask, well, then what's the difference between the God of Scripture, the goddess who is the creator of, uh, the, uh, of the cosmos, and also the gods of the Greek pantheon, uh, the gods of polytheistic cults, which of course were very, very anthropomorphic. And so the problem of anthropomorphism, my point simply is that the problem of anthropomorphism is not something that arises when you look with some sort of extraneous philosophical lens at scripture. The problem of anthropomorphism is actually right there in the scripture itself. And so it's scripture itself that claims, for example, that God's thoughts are not our thoughts. You know, it's scripture itself that presents God as the one who is. I mean, it's a mysterious statement, but there's a variety of ways in which, of course, you can understand it. But one of the ways in which you could cast it is that God is, the, God is a mystery. God is something that holds the power of being in his hands. God is, again, the cause of all creation. So, those types of theological questions, in what way God is like humans, and in what way God is 
beyond everything in human experience. They arise, and I show this at length, they arise out of the scriptural uh, uh, language itself. And so then what is impassibility? An impassibility is simply an attempt to say, well, okay, so if we ascribe anger to God, if we ascribe, ascribe something like wrath to God, in what sense could God be said to be angry? And one option would be to say that anger is an expression of divine judgment, and it is God's righteous indignation, simply at the extent of human fallenness and sinfulness. And so because God takes us seriously, because God loves us, there is also a sense in which God cares for us so much that, in fact, he takes our actions seriously and his wrath is an expression of that. And you could go, in, and the church fathers go into directions with this thought. One direction is to say that God, in fact, does not feel anger, but rather it's sinful humans in a state of alienation that experience God's love as if it were punishing wrath and as if it were anger. So then the claim is God in himself then is fundamentally the God of love, but anger in this case becomes simply an expression of human experience. You might say, um, that this is a kind of a phenomenological treatment of this particular attribute. In other words, it's not an attribute that's subjectively to be ascribed to God, but it's an attribute that's subjectively to be ascribed to humans in, again, their fallen state. So that's one reading of, 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 of that attribute. The second reading, and I think it's a more convincing reading uh, of the same attribute, and again, some fathers go in one direction and the other fathers go in a different direction, uh, and that second direction is to say, well, no, we have to say that God feels something like anger, but that anger is not, strictly speaking, as human anger. It doesn't quite have the same properties as human anger. So what does it then say? What does it mean to say that God feels wrath or is angry impassably? I mean, one could say, well, that's just a contradiction. You're really forcing language to the point where the language collapses. I think I would I would certainly disagree with that because I think that in this situation what we're saying is God's anger is always a moral re- reaction to a particular set a particular situation. God's anger is an attempt at at least recognizing that there is alienation between God and creatures, and then an attempt at repairing that situation. And so, to that extent, God's anger, therefore, is an expression of God's righteous indignation, and it is certainly unlike most expressions of human anger. In other words, when humans are angry, it's, a, it's an emotion that often destroys us. And I think in many ways the Stoics were right when they were very cautious about expressions of anger. Uh, but humans can also understand that anger might is not always arbitrary. And sometimes certain situations, especially situations of egregious evil, such as, for example, Holocaust or a rape of a child or something like that, those types of situations quite rightly evoke very strong emotions from us. And those emotions are, in fact, expressions of our moral intuitions and judgment. And so, so therefore, what's at stake, therefore, is God's anger is tied to God's moral properties. And what's crucial then in this regard is that to say that God feels anger impassably is to say that whatever emotion can be ascribed to God, it has to be ascribed to God in a manner that's fitting for God. 
And so here we're also dealing uh, as, a, as a helpful corollary with the concept of theoprepes or that which is appropriate for God or that which is fitting to God. And it's, it's this beautiful and somewhat mullable concept that I think um, that I think is very useful in understanding or, if you will, in purifying the language with which, with which we speak about God. Is there a majority position between those two sort of ways of cashing out impassibility in the patristics? Right. So, so impassibility then itself stands simply for the claim that God transcends the human condition of suffering. As the creator, God is such that one cannot attribute suffering to God directly. Uh, but what the fathers are also going to say, and this is rather crucial, and then so the obvious question that then arises is how to think of the revelation of God in Christ on the cross and how to understand the suffering of Christ himself. In what way is this suffering then attributable to God if effectively we're also claiming that God is impassable? Again, are we not involving ourselves in contradiction in trying to have our cake and eat it too in claiming that God is beyond suffering, and yet also saying, well, if you want to know what God's love is, look at Jesus on the cross. And I'm deeply committed, of course, to the claim that the cross of Christ and his resurrection are the highest expressions and the greatest revelation of God's love. So uh, uh, that is something I would want to uphold very strongly. And I think the way, the way to deal with this particular issue is to say uh, this, that it's false to identify the patristic understanding of God's involvement in suffering simply with a descetic view, and the descetic view would be that God doesn't, uh, or God only seemed to suffer, the divine agent only seemed to suffer because, of course, uh, Jesus only seemed to have a body. And so the suffering itself was some, something in semblance. And it's also equally wrong to identify the patristic view with the subordinationist, or if you will, broadly speaking, Aryan position. And that would be the view that if the Son of God suffered on the cross, then the Son of God could not be truly God. And again, so the patristic thought, therefore, was consistent in denying those two views. And then subsequently, in the controversy with between Cyril of Alexandria and Nestorius, and I do a lot specifically with that controversy, because for me, in many ways, that is the point at which the matter is decisively resolved. In that controversy, it's, it's important not to identify the church's view with the view that essentially you have, in Jesus, you have two agents. One agent is divine and one is human. The divine remains immune from suffering. The human effectively suffers humanly. So the thrust of, Nest of, of Cyril of Alexandria's objection to Nestorius was to say that, no, in fact, in Jesus Christ, you have one subject, namely the Logos, and the Logos endures, participates in suffering in and through his humanity, in and through human flesh. So the claim is that uh, the Logos on his own cannot suffer as God and should not suffer in isolation 
from the incarnation. But also in the condition of the incarnation, the Logos is the only subject of all of human experiences of Christ, and therefore Christ's humanity does not endure or undergo suffering on its own. And so the way I see the heart of the church's attempt at understanding the mystery of incarnation and the cross is to say that in the incarnation, the Logos, who is fully God, suffers in and through human nature. And that suffering is free, it's transformative, and it is ultimately conducive to human salvation. So if we were to ask what precisely then is the function of divine impassibility, it would be to say that divine impassibility safeguards the fact that the suffering is free. Most of human suffering is not free. Most of human suffering is such that it is endured by us passively from the outside. There are obviously some important paradigms and counterexamples by means of which we can also understand the suffering of the martyrs, for example, as participating in the suffering of Christ. But generally speaking, unless we are you know, masochists, uh, we do not endure suffering as something that is free, whereas God who transcends suffering freely chooses to suffer. And why would he do that? Because he chooses, he freely chooses to suffer in and through human nature for the salvation of the world. And so the telos, the purpose of God's suffering in and through Jesus, is precisely our salvation. And so how then is salvation accomplished? One patristic take on this is to say that salvation is accomplished precisely through the transformation of human suffering and through the defeat and the destruction of death. So there is another significant element, Jason, in the understanding of impassibility, where impassibility is not simply, again, something that just straightforwardly rejects the fact that God can suffer, but rather it's the claim that in the suffering of Christ, God ultimately emerges victorious over the powers of sin, suffering, and death. So, in other words, the cross, while it is the center of our revelation about God, it is also not, at the same time, the last word of the divine revelation, but the cross ultimately results in and culminates in the resurrection. So how are we then to understand the resurrection? Well, in the resurrection, and this is actually where, interestingly, some later medieval authors, especially the Franciscan preaching and Franciscan understanding of the resurrection body is really very helpful. The resurrection body is understood as impassable, and what that means is ultimately impervious in suffering. So I, I don't believe that in the life of the age to come, there will be any suffering left. And as such, therefore, there will be a kind of a defeat of death and suffering. And for that reason, I think one also needs to think of the resurrection body in terms of impassibility. And that's precisely how, again, these classical sources treat treat this question. Okay, that, that's very helpful and very interesting. So you've, you mentioned early on uh, the terminology of like emotions. And I'm wondering... In our contemporary understanding of when we talk about emotions, how does that map back onto the terminology of passions? And uh, I know I was reading Aquinas the other night, and he, when he's talking, 
in some of Contra Gentiles, like 89 to 96 or wherever it is. And he's talking about the different passions. He's denying the passions of the appetites. Um, and then he's wanting to predicate things like uh, love and joy to God. And so I think it gets confusing mm-hmm. um, between emotions, between passions, between appetites, all these things. How do these, how does this work? How do we, should we think about those sort of terms being used of God? Because does a passibility mean he doesn't have joy? Um, those sort of, sort of questions. So that's ter- Again, that's a terrific, again, that's, that's an absolutely terrific question. And I think here we need to be cognizant of the following issue. And I think uh, those of us, those of your listeners who are graduate students, but all of us, I think, would appreciate that. In the contemporary English use, and I think that's true of both American English and English English, but especially true of American English, when we say, what's your passion? We really are talking about what's your greatest aspiration? What's your interest? What drives you? What's your main driver, right? So the term passion has undergone a really a significant evolution. That's completely normal. That's natural. That's what, that's what happens to language. Um, the Greek term pathos also is a fairly broad category, but whatever it means, it does not mean what we've just discussed. So it doesn't actually mean the greatest thing that's driving you. So how can one possibly take this from somebody and say, well, you should be dispassionate? Well, that's not very helpful. Uh, but rather pathos, it, it, it is, frankly, pathos as loaded is as loaded of a term as, for example, the term logos. I mean, literally. So, for example, pathos can mean bad accident. So it's pretty obvious that there are no bad accidents in the life of God, unless we really want to say that God, I mean, again, I, unless we want to give up on all kinds of things, including divine omnipotence, for example, and also uh, a divine, divine omniscience or some sense of divine foreknowledge. Now, again, contemporary theologians have experimented with giving up on those emotions. To, to sort of long story short, I believe that, yes, of course, caching what, what, what those attributes actually mean, omnipotence and omniscience, is hard. But I think a lot more is lost if we simply give up on them, or if we simply fudge them, or if we say they don't really mean what they mean, and God actually is not the God of these infinite perfections, but God is somehow limited. Uh, I think there's far greater problems that arise then. And frankly, there's also problems primarily with revelation. This isn't just simply a philosophy seminar in this case. These are really deep, serious problems arrive, arise with revelation once we give up on those omni properties. So impassibilities for me is simply is in the same bundle. So pathos, as, I can, uh, as I've just said, can mean bad accidents, a uh, bad accident. And so, so, for example, when Oedipus kills his father without knowing it, okay, well, that's pathos in Greek tragedy. Okay, that's something. Um, what else d- does path- pathos and pathy mean? Pathy uh, is the term that's applied to passions. And as far as the world of Greek tragedy is concerned, as far as the world, um, the kind of conceptual world, for example, of Stoicism is concerned, these are sort of irrational disturbances. And the problem with them is we have a tremendously difficult time ordering them, a tremendously difficult time coming to grips with them, etc. And of course, the Greeks cash them out in a variety of ways. Here is the interesting transition, though, and it's relevant to your point about Aquinas. Latin is somewhat better 
and accommodating a neutral sense of the term affectio and affectiones. In other words, affects, affections, etc., in Latin are much closer to our contemporary understanding of emotion that is fundamentally neutral. It's fundamentally neutral. Pathos has a much stronger negative connotation. It really, we're really talking about the emotions that are sort of tearing one apart and the emotions that are also consequent upon fault beliefs. That's, that was a common full sort of stoic trope. Then emotions that are taken in a more neutral, in a more neutral uh, uh, manner, in a more neutral sense. Uh, that said, of course, the Greek, it's not to say that the Greek is not dealing with divine you know, joy or hara, and it's not dealing with, for example, eros. So, you know, there will come a time in the patristic tradition in the 6th century when a theologian by the name of Pseudo-Dionysius the Areopagite is going to draw on the elements in the patristic tradition that are trying to redeem even the concept of eros and to try to say that it is fundamentally a propulsion towards unity. It's a unitive act, and it could in fact be purified and redeemed and it could be something that could even be noetic. In other words, could be ascribed to the very center of human desiring, volition, and thinking. Or could be ascribed, if you will, to the highest function of the human self, the, the, the function that connects us with God. Nous, in the Greek theological tradition, is very, very close to the notion of lev or levav in the biblical uh, tradition. In other words, and the whole point then of subsequent mysticism, at least in Byzantium, is to sort of connect nusa, mind, and heart in some profound ways. And one of the ways in which you can do it is in your spiritual life or in prayer. And so um, returning then to the question, it's confusing when uh, Aquinas says you can't have these and you can't have those and you can't have those, but then God can have joy. Well, I mean, I think I was trying to get at this by saying that God's emotionally colored attributes such as love, joy, but even going in the direction, or, or uh, uh, compassion, etc., are such that the problematic elements of those emotions that are often found in humans, everything that's connected with human weakness, has, its, has no place in God. And yet, at the same time, it's possible to think of the divine transcendence as a realm of positive or transfigured emotions. And so if the whole point of life with God is to transform our own emotional life so that we, for example, have peace that passes all understanding and love and other things, then it's also possible then to say that if these emotions are induction of the divine life, then there should be those emotions too. So to say that God experiences love or joy impassably is to say that God experiences them in a divinely appropriate manner. And it's also to say, it is sort of to purify the language of those emotions. It's to say that the bad stuff that's in our emotions, and I will be the first to admit there is a lot of it in our, our makeup, the fallen passions, the passions that tie us to our propensity for self-centeredness uh, and our propensity for rebellion against God, 
those types of passions present as they were, for example, in the Greco-Roman deities, have no place in the life of God. So that's that's the that's the sort of yeah. Yeah. So here's a question for you. I read a recent argument against impassibility from compassion. And so the argument sort of went like this. Mm -hmm. It is, well, divine impassibility requires that God can't uh, be moved or receive anything in a particular way. Compassion requires that sort of internal moving by something external. And compassion is supposed to be a virtue and something we should desire. Therefore, if that's true, then God can't be impassable because we want to have him have compassion. So is there something wrong with that sort of argument that we would want to say, no, I think we need to tweak this or, or change this and how we understand what we're talking about, whether it's compassion or impassibility? So I think, thank you for that question. It's a profound and significant question. It's not, it's not a question for which I will provide a completely adequate answer. And I will tell you, because that's also based on my experience of my subsequent interaction with very thoughtful readers. And so in the book, I argue that we need a slightly sharper differentiation between empathy proper and a kind of an emotional uh, imagination and sort of emotional self-identification with the condition of the sufferer and compassion. So people have argued that compassion as its etymology suggests, means compassio, in other words, suffering with. And so to that extent, therefore, it requires a significant degree of emotional identification with the condition of the sufferer. And then on those grounds, therefore, God would have to also suffer with in order to be a God of compassion. My position on this matter is that it's true that human empathy, the ability to, to some extent, understand what the person in dire straits goes through, is certainly based on, on, on again, on the idea that we could imagine what it would look like if we were in a similar situation. But my claim is that empathy proper should be quite sharply distinguished from compassion that I define as an action directed at changing the situation of the sufferer. And I'm using an example in the book of a house on fire and various people reacting different to the house on fire. So, for example, one might see a house on fire and might see, for example, a child crying in the house. And one might stand outside of that house and one might be panicky. One might be going crazy as a result of seeing the scene. So strictly speaking, that's something very close to suffering with because you're going through all kinds of motions, if you will. But the issue for me is, does that amount to compassion? It seems to me that compassion requires an action that changes the situation of the sufferer, namely, well, saving people in the house or saving the house itself. And if you have, as Jesus did when he assumed human nature, if you have the nature such that it's capable of suffering, then you will also be undergoing the risks involved in saving or rescuing people from the house and fire. 
But again, for me, compassion goes that one step further. So you might ask then a question, what exactly does that mean for a fire person to actually be impassable in this situation? Well, and my answer would be, well, it's the ability to precisely change the situation of the sufferer. It's the ability not only to suffer with, that's helpful, and again, some minimal risk assessment, some just some apprehension, for example, that these people are, you know, need to be saved, I think, of course, is required. So there, there's absolutely a need for some form of emotional identification. But my point is that it's not enough, that it's not enough, that what's required really is the ability to help. Another example would be something, I, I mean, in my judgment, when we speak of Christ as a physician, in my judgment, he really is closer to a surgeon performing a delicate and complex surgical uh, procedure on humankind, and the result of which is, if you will, the elimination or destruction of the cancerous growth of sin, as opposed to an empathetic nurse. And mind you, doctors wrote to me and said, yeah, you've got it absolutely right. For me, compassion means blocking the side of me that's fragile, blocking the side of me that is simply dying to simply commiserate, and focusing on what I can do to save this person when the situation is dire. And then I also had, for example, a very good friend who unfortunately has now departed to a better world, who was a nurse, also read my material very closely when he was preparing for the diaconate and said, look, we nurses, we really cannot do what the doctors do so well. And that is our job in many ways is in fact to empathize. And by empathy, that's how we help. So as you can see, really in the process of reflecting on this material in the book, I've also evolved my position. And I would certainly say that both are required. It's just, it doesn't seem to be necessary metaphysically for the omnipotent God to go through the motions in order for God to help. You see, you see. so for a human, it's important to process these things because we're not uh, omniscient and omnipotent. So we're not all-powerful and we're not all-knowing. But for God, who is those two things, it doesn't seem to be necessary to simply become a kind of a storage of humanity's experience. Because, I argue in the book, that if God becomes simply a storage of humanity's suffering, then God becomes a copy of human suffering. And in that regard, he's no longer, to use Whitehead's phrase, a fellow sufferer who understands, or rather, he is just a fellow sufferer who understands and can do absolutely nothing about it. And that seems to me a deeply, deeply puzzling and inadequate picture of God. Because whoever God is, God is the power over death, and God is the power of the resurrection. And of course, that's brought about by means of the cross. So again, we have to return to that notion of God who suffers impassively through and in human nature as the Logos. Hmm. That's helpful. And I know in your in this original book, I think you talked about... Uh, potential dilemma between an unrestrictedly impassable God and, a, and an unrestrictedly passable God. Do you think that is that there is a dilemma there or is there not a dilemma there? Yes. I mean, I think, yes, Jordan, that's a great, that's a great point. That's a great point too. Uh, so I'm sort of casting it in terms of the paradox, at least uh, most of my statements presuppose that 
another way, of course, of, of saying this would be to say, well, somebody like Nestorius of Constantinople argued principally is that God cannot suffer under any circumstances in any situation whatsoever. It follows, therefore, that incarnation changed nothing in this condition. And in the incarnation, you have a kind of an extraneously added human subject. And it's that human subject that does the human things while God abides in his completely unperturbed transcendent realm. Now, again, the point of the book is I, my suggestion is that I see the logic of the church's reflection about on this very complex subject as to how you can have human and divine natures in one agent, in one subject. I, I see this as expressed again by Cyril of Alexandria's set of paradoxes. Uh, and I, but, uh, but there's also a way of simply saying that if you're claiming that God is unrestrictedly passable, you're essentially making it, making, there's a danger here of converting God into a copy of suffering humanity. And that's not useful because you're then duplicating the problems that humanity already has. Now, you might say it's a, some sort of a glorified copy or the greatest possible copy. But again, that doesn't seem to offer a great solution other than simply a sense of commiseration over the whole problem. Uh, whereas if you're saying that God is simply completely uninvolved and uninterested in humanity's plight, and so if you cash impassibility in unrestricted terms, there is a danger then to say that God simply cannot be a God of compassion just because he just doesn't have the equipment. Whereas if you take both notions in a restricted way, then you could say that in the conditions of the incarnation, in the situation where God enters created order, God effectively is such that having assumed the limitations of human nature, God then suffers in and through that nature. And why is that also important? You might say, why does God need this? Well, because if God suffers on his own, then it's not clear at all why incarnation would be actually necessary. I mean, if God has the equipment to undergo all human experiences in the manner in which uh, we do, then it's, if that, that can happen in the divine nature, well, then what's the point then of the human nature? So we're then dealing constantly with a shifting notion of what it means for God to be God. And also we're dealing with a really shifting notion of what it, go, what it means for God to undergo something humanly. So I think in the doctrine of the incarnation, you do have a sense that God acts in such a way that he, having assumed human nature, undergoes suffering in and he, through human nature freely, salvifically, with the purpose of the transformation. So that is what I take to be the kind of summary of the patristic interpretation of what scripture wishes to intends to convey was the notion of Christ's cross and his resurrection. Okay. Now I do have one last question I want to ask you, and that's about sort of the modern canonic sort of approaches to uh, the incarnation, as well as potentially applying it to the divine attributes in general. Is, is it possible for God to somehow voluntarily give up his impassibility or to press pause on it for any period of time? Well, and that was that is uh, exactly what puzzled me about Moltmann's conception. In Moltmann's conception, even more radically, you really have a break in the Holy Trinity for 
the three days that Jesus effectively is um, on the cross and then subsequently in the tomb and prior to the resurrection. And so you have some sort of ontological division within the Trinity that results in Christ's death. And that seems to be metaphysically impossible and not really particularly carefully thought out. And so your question, however, concerns a related matter, and that is a matter that has to do with the idea, can we index divine properties in such a way as to say that each property has is such that God is X unless he decides to be non-X. Something, something, along, something along those lines. And I think in this particular case, that kind of conditional would seem to be... So in other words, what, what one is saying is something like this. Is there is this matter property of divine freedom, or if you will, divine free decision to be, um, or change from X to non-X. And we, we, we run, of course, into an in, in interesting and important metaphysical puzzle uh, as to how, in what sense, is the god of omnipropities and god of perfections is also a god who is free. Is freedom simply one of the properties here, or is it precisely a property that kind of influences all other properties? I, I think there's there's clearly a deep conjunction and interaction of properties. For example, one can't, I mean, simplicity is a great example, although simplicity is such a difficult subject that it will take us another 45 minutes to talk about it. And that's not our plan today. Uh, but simplicity is a really interesting kind of uh, meta property because once you accept that God is simple, and I'm not saying one should, but I'm saying once you accept that God is simple, then, of course, it influences the way you conceive of divine unity. And if that's the case, that influences really in some profound ways how you conceive then of all attributes in God. Um, and so freedom is something like that. And I would want to say that um, the idea that God gives up a certain property um, is problematic because it's not clear what safeguards the divine identity okay so humans are such that they to be a person is to preserve some kind of unity across time and change but god doesn't exist in the same way in which human personhood exists and that is to say unity across time and change simply of of changing properties but god exists in eternity how one conceives of it. And again, notice that what's crucial about eternity is that it's not timelessness. It's not lacking the property of being in time. And again, this is really significant in understanding now divine suffering. It's not that God lacks the property of being able to suffer, empathize, etc. It's that God transcends those attributes and those properties as they are found in creatures. That's really, that's the fundamental claim about divine impassibility. So I personally do not find the condition of God foregoing or relinquishing divine omnipropities in the incarnation useful. 
And frankly, one of the simple reasons why it's not particularly useful is, I mean, what are we to do with, the, with, with Jesus's miracles? I mean, are they performed by an, uh, by an agent that relinquished uh, omni properties? Okay, so these are then what, miracles over just a miracle worker? They're not, they're therefore, and they're not somehow revelatory of divine nature. What are they, what are they revealing about, about God? Some sort of second grade deity? So, so my point, therefore, is that abandoning the notion that God still uh, has those, those properties is, is a problem. Now, if we're saying, for example, that God withholds those properties or suspends their operation, while still having them, I think that's probably a bit more cogent of an approach than the notion that God relinquishes them. And 19th century canonic material goes kind of back and forth on this. And one interesting element about sort of the canonic world of 19th century canonicists is some of that say some of them would say, well, the absolute properties, I don't know, such as for example, divine glory, uh, or other elements or divine love, the absolute properties have to stay because that's how you sustain divine identity. But there are also these relative properties, and those properties relate precisely to the question of how God relates to creatures. Well, those properties, on those properties, one could say that uh, God relinquishes some of them. So notice the attempt here is still to safeguard divine identity. So I guess my crucial element is God still needs to be God in the incarnation. And if God loses the sense that God, I mean, if we lost, lose the sense that God is God in the incarnation, then it's not obvious to me at all that we've got actually the divine revelation of something that's distinctly divine here. What we have here is then really a creaturely, a temporarily creaturely state of God. And I just don't think that's a particularly cogent notion, although I, I can also understand that this notion attempts to address certain legitimate uh, sort of metaphysical concern. Okay. Uh, I, I have one follow-up, so I lied. I have one more question. Um, as quickly as you can, give me, I mean, you mentioned how you, you're talking about impassibility as far as sort of transcendence. And it seems to me that the contemporary stuff I read, um, when they talk about divine impassibility, that's not sort of the the framework they're working with. They're working with a far more rigid, it's a denial of pretty much any sort of feeling emotion whatsoever in God, because that would have all sorts of complications. Is there a reason, is there a distinction between the contemporary sort of more wooden, it seems rigid approach and what you're talking about here? Yes. I mean, yes, there's clearly a distinction. And so I think Jordan, therefore, uh, thank you for that clarification, because then there is a danger that we're really talking past each other because we start with different definitions. And we therefore, the reason for my definition really has to do primarily with the fact that I'm a historical theologian. I'm interested in uh, the biblical texts. I'm interested in in the interpretation of those biblical texts, or at least the key moves that patristic exegetes make about those texts. And then, of course, subsequently, the kind of contemporary assessment of what the, the patristic project of looking at scriptural revelation involved. And so um, I am certainly not simply uh, working with the definition that rigidly de denies to God a particular set of properties, namely the property of feeling emotions or the property of suffering. Uh, my claim is precisely that God transcends suffering, and if God feels emotions, and I think he does, 
then it is the case that God feels emotions or undergoes them in a manner appropriate to God or in a manner that transcends the emotions of humans. So that's really the kind of, and I don't think it's, it's an intuition. I think it's also a scriptural. I think there is definitely scriptural backing for such an account. Because again, the dilemma here is not between a hyper-emotional God on the one side and the God who is a bit like a stone, okay, or unemotional, or if you will, the impersonal God of Aristotle is usually invoked in this sort of context. Uh, the dilemma shouldn't be between those two gods because it's not obvious how simply attributing emotions to God is really helpful in understanding God's providential care for creation. I mean, I, for example, I mean, this is my maybe my final point. I have actually no doubt that the fallen angel called the devil is pretty emotional being. I mean, I think he has, you know, he has an investment in the destruction of humanity in some sense. And therefore, so my point, therefore, is being emotional does not equal being compassionate. And, and that's another way of getting at this. And so what would it take to be truly compassionate? Well, for one, not being self, not being destructive and not being selfish. I mean, that's just as two obvious elements, for example, of the demonic state. But you could go, you know, with envy and other things. And so God transcends all those things because God also does not depend on creatures. God's love is such... And I, uh, that God does not get emotionally infected by creatures. And God, in his love, expresses that love in such a way that it is not something that fills some lack in God. And so therefore, to, to, to the extent to which God's emotions transcend human emotions, God could be said to be a pastor. Okay, that's super helpful. So thank you. This has been tremendous. This has been really clarifying and helpful. Um, everybody's been listening. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put in the show notes, uh, whenever you click on this, I'll have links to Dr. Gavriluk's works, especially this book. I'll highlight this one first, the one where you're talking about the suffering of the impassable God. Uh, so you can easily click it. You'll get a copy of it because I think it's tremendous. Um, so thank you, Dr. Gavriluk, for all the work you've done uh, for the years of intense study and writing. Uh, we really appreciate it. There's a lot of people out there who really benefit from your work. So thank you for that. And everybody's been listening. Uh, thanks for tuning in to the Only Analytic and Baptist, ba and only out of Analytic Baptist and Confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. A new year, time for new growth. Grow your education and skills with Herzing University. Our online behavioral health programs fit your schedule and time. From an eight-month diploma program in health and human services to a 36-month bachelor's in psychology. Grow your behavioral health career with us wherever you are in your education. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Visit us online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. Online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.